Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hi, I'm Jim Petrakis of AEI, and I'll be moderating today's event. Much of the focus this morning will be on two new proposals from the Biden administration, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, including tax policy, infrastructure, energy policy, and our social safety net. And that raises many questions. How much will raising taxes affect economic growth in the United States? How can policymakers effectively revamp this country's infrastructure? Can we provide greater assistance to families without discouraging work? And will this administration continue to rely more on the executive branch for policymaking, or will Congress begin to reassert itself? I'm excited to discuss these questions with today's panel of AEI scholars, whom I will now introduce. Richard Geddes focuses on infrastructure, public and private partnerships, the U.S. postal system, and corporate governance. He's also the director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy. Kyle Parmalou studies federal tax policy. Previously, Kyle was the chief economist and vice president of economic analysis at the Tax Foundation. Philip Wallach studies America's separation of powers with a focus on regulatory policy issues and the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. Uh, before joining AI, Phil was a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and the R Street Institute. And Scott Winship is the director of poverty studies here at AI, where he researches social mobility and the causes and effects of poverty. Previously, he served as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, where he spearheaded the social capital project. Please stick around. Once our discussion is over, there'll be a second AEI panel discussing the foreign policy of President Biden's first 100 days. With that, we'll get started. Rick, who I think we'll be talking a bit about infrastructure. Rick? Thanks for the invitation to uh, come and speak. Uh, it's terrific to be invited, and it's obviously a very important topic, uh, one of the most uh, bipartisan topics, I think. Uh, so I'll take a, a quick step back, try to summarize the issues in a short amount of time, first by defining uh, infrastructure. There's been some issues on the question of definitions recently, and normally we think about it in two buckets. One is what we think of as heavy civil or networked infrastructure. So this is what most people think of when they the word infrastructure comes up. They probably think of large systems uh, with strong physical interconnections between component parts, like a drinking water system or a wastewater treatment system, a transportation system, or an energy system, now perhaps also a, a communication system. Uh, the second bucket we call social infrastructure, it's still physical infrastructure. So if all of this is physical, in the sense, uh, social infrastructure would be standalone facilities, like a school, a prison, a courthouse, a hospital, that might provide sort of public goods and services, be publicly owned, uh, but is still part of the, the infrastructure system. In, uh, in the United States, a lot of these systems are old, particularly in the eastern part of the United States, um, but they are, um, you know, uh, very much in need of renovation. So one of the, the big issues, I think, is um, shifting the focus from uh, uh, building out old systems so, so designing and constructing, or sorry, uh, building out new systems, designing and constructing the interstate to doing better operation and maintenance of the systems that we have already, better taking care of uh, the systems that we have. And so that's one policy thrust that I think we need to keep in mind 
Um, the second thing to keep in mind is that over 90% of what we consider to be civil infrastructure is owned by a state or local government. So it's normally not federally owned. Federally owned infrastructure is often uh, military infrastructures like army bases and Navy bases. Normal civil infrastructure is state and locally owned. So that means that state and local, you have to figure out how the federal government is gonna work with state and local governments in order to improve that infrastructure. So normally that would be uh, operation and maintenance. So one of the big issues that I think where there's, there's confusion, James, about this is the distinction between funding versus financing. We often hear that there's a financing gap in taking care of our infrastructure, but really what it is is a, is a funding gap. And that means we've had deferred maintenance uh, for many years for a lot of systems. Um, due to political uh, incentives, there's an incentive to build new systems and not take care of, of what we have. The American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that at almost a trillion dollars uh, backlog of deferred maintenance. So as we try to, you know, take care of these um, these systems, you know, we have to focus on shifting from design and construction uh, to operation and maintenance and really coming up with the money for that. So when we think about that, uh, James, the uh, there's different ways of doing it. One big issue is user fees. So instead of using general taxes uh, to fund infrastructure, to pay for it, is using more of a, of a user fee in transportation. The gas tax and the diesel tax historically has been in the nature of a user fee. Um, there's a lot of states that are pushing towards mileage-based user fees. To get away from a per-gallon tax on gas or diesel fuel and to focus more on um, charging some sort of per-mile uh, road usage fee. Um, so that's a funding issue. So uh, the other, other issues that come up with regard to uh, transportation infrastructure are um, an infrastructure in general is environmental permitting, so speeding up the environmental permitting process, uh, making that uh, work better. And it's one of the things that you said, James, is um, bringing more private investment into uh, working, the public and the private sector working together uh, to better take care of infrastructure. Um, th that can occur in a lot of ways. I think the way that infrastructure is procured or delivered in the United States needs to be updated. Uh, the way we've delivered it over time, which uh, is called traditional delivery, which would take me longer to explain, has resulted in a situation where there's a lot of deferred maintenance. So uh, one of the issues is to just bundle together more activities like bundled design and construction together with operation and maintenance of infrastructure, and then um, have a long-term contract that'll ensure that the, the infrastructure is better maintained than it has been in the past. So there, I think there's a whole lot of uh, margins on which the um, two parties can collaborate on a good infrastructure bill. I'll just close, James, by saying this, this is really a, a bipartisan issue. And this is, is one of the things where I think both parties can uh, cooperate. But I'll close by saying that Congress doesn't pass an infrastructure bill. It passes a bill focused on transportation, another bill focused on water, another bill focused on energy, and now perhaps one focused on communications and broadband. So Congress is going to, there's going to be a whole bunch of committees that are going to have to collaborate and coordinate in order to get various types of infrastructure bills uh, passed. 
Kyle, who I think will be talking about taxes next. Looks like we've got a lot of changes perhaps coming up over the next uh, year or so. So, uh, Kyle. Yeah, th thanks, Jim. First, we started with infrastructure. Now we'll talk about how the Biden administration wants to finance some of this new spending. So par part of the American Jobs Plan that was released earlier this month, uh, Joe Biden, his administration put forth pretty significant changes to the corporate income tax as a means uh, to pay for a lot of the new spending. Um, so just a brief overview of what all the provisions are. So I think the, the biggest one that a lot of people paid attention to is they first raise the corporate income tax rate currently at 21% to 28%. Um, in addition, he would reform the minimum tax on foreign profits that U.S. multinational corporations earn overseas, um, and he'll change this a number, a number of ways. Some of the changes are pretty complicated. In addition, he would eliminate uh, a provision called FDII, or Foreign Derived Intangible Income. Uh, this is a provision that allows corporations to deduct uh, a portion of their income that they earn in the United States related to exports. He would replace a current minimum tax called the BEAT or the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax with another minimum tax that has an acronym called SHIELD, which they call Stopping Harmful Inversions and Ending Low-Tax Developments. Um, these work kind of similar, but the SHIELD is supposed to be a more powerful provision that denies deductions um, that corporations may take for payments they make to uh, other uh, related foreign corporations to prevent uh, profit shifting and base erosion. At the same time, because all of these, uh, many of these provisions would raise the burden on corporations located in the United States, his policy would make it more difficult for corporations to expatriate or to invert and move their headquarters overseas. At the same time, he would enact a 15% minimum book tax. So corporations in each year would have to pay the greater of 15% of their financial statement income or their ordinary corporate tax liability. He would eliminate fossil fuel provisions. Um, these are aimed at raising taxes on oil and natural gas companies. Uh, we don't really know exactly what these provisions are yet, um, but based on the, on past maybe things like eliminating last in first out accounting for uh, fossil fuel companies, eliminating some regulations um, related to the foreign tax credit for oil companies, um, but still not a lot of details. And then lastly, he would increase auditing um, for corporations as a means to raise revenue. Um, and one of the big goals of Biden administration has been to reduce the tax gap. And they think they can pick up some additional revenue from increasing audit rates among corporations. Overall, these provisions will probably raise somewhere between 130 to $150 billion a year in additional revenue, or about a half a percentage point of GDP um, in, in additional revenue each and every year. Uh, and the administration says this ends up paying for the American Jobs Plan over a 15-year period. Now, there's a little bit of a budget window game here going on. A lot of the spending in the American Jobs Plan is, is large and temporary, so it comes in at the first 10 years, but the taxes are permanent. So what you really see is that there's borrowing up front because the taxes are insufficient to pay for the large spending up front, but then in outside the budget window because the taxes are, are permanent, it ends up raising revenue on net and reducing the deficit in the long term, in the long run. Now, 
that said, I think that the policies out there in terms of revenue are more of a ceiling. It's probably the most you'd expect the federal government to raise from corporations, because I think what's going to limit this is the politics of the, of the proposal and some of the complexities. There are already concerns about some of the policies out there. For example, the corporate tax rate was more likely we're going to see something like 25% rather than 28%. And that by itself knocks about $30 billion off the total uh, revenue from the, from the corporations. Just to conclude here for some final thoughts about the proposal. First, I want to, you know, I want to give them credit for wanting to finance their new spending. Um, this, you know, sometimes this is rare. But I think, you know, they've chosen to raise revenue from maybe a, a pretty inefficient source, um, the corporate income tax. There are downsides to raising the corporate tax and raising the the, the tax rate uh, to 28%, that increases the incentive to shift profits out of the United States, makes the cost of investment higher, can reduce the capital stock in the long run. The international provisions are pretty significant change from current law. I didn't really get into the details, but there are some complexities in there that the administration hasn't really worked through yet. Um, and I think there may be some political challenges there too. Um, the the minimum tax on book income, I mean, one, it's poor policy, it's complicated. Um, it's also probably not gonna raise very much revenue at the end of the day. The administration is already paring it back, um, but that's something that's probably should be dropped and maybe dropped at the end here. And give the administration some credit Again, I think they recognize some of these downsides to the policy. That's why they're looking for provisions such as shield. Um, they they know that there's going to be this pressure for companies to move profits or headquarters overseas. So they also want to work with foreign uh, foreign jurisdictions on their p policies that could, to stop what they call the race to the bottom um, to bring taxes up on corporations throughout the world. Um, somewhat skeptical they'd be able to do that. Um, there's already been some pushback from some countries that have uh, tax rates that are lower than this minimum tax that they're looking to propose. Um, and then the, the last piece here is it's also important to point out what their corporate policy doesn't, uh, doesn't address. Say the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act left a lot of policies that are scheduled to change, tax increases that are scheduled to go into effect, the treatment of research and development expenses is going to worsen um, at the end of this year. The following year, 100% um, bonus depreciation is going to start phasing out. These are tax increases that are going to reduce the incentive to invest in the United States. I think that's something that Biden administration lawmakers should at least consider um, addressing as part of their package. It may actually help also offset some of the down downsides, the economic downsides of their proposals. So to conclude, you know, I think it's good they're aiming to finance their spending. I don't think the corporate code is, uh, um, is the best way to do it, um, even though I think that you know, the corporate income tax does need, uh, does need changes here. Um, but, you know, overall, I think, um, you know, not everything's fixed yet. And I think there are still some changes that will occur. Um, but, you know, you know we'll, we'll see what happens. Great. Thanks a lot, uh, Kyle. That was super informative. Now we're, I think we're up with uh, Phil, who I think is going to be uh, talking a bit about uh, government governance, I think. Uh, Phil? I was asked to talk about two things, the separation of powers um, and sort of how the branches are working together in, in fashioning domestic policy. 
and regulatory policy specifically. So those are two areas that I study that are often very much related in that oftentimes in recent years, the big question in making new regulations is just how much the executive branch can change without having to depend on Congress. So to give one consequential example, take climate change. Uh, Ever since the Waxman-Markey climate change bill failed in the Democratic-controlled Senate back in 2010, the question has been how far existing statutes can go to control greenhouse gas emissions, and especially the Clean Air Act. Every step along the way has caused a legal firestorm, whether it's a step forward or more regulation or a step back, trying to peel those regulations back in the Trump administration. At every step, the courts are asked to to weigh in. These fights really drag out, and it's really not an exaggeration at all to say that the Trump administration spent its whole four years trying to unwind Obama administration climate rules uh, with varying degrees of success. So the Biden administration is not picking up exactly where the Obama administration left off. Instead, it finds itself starting over to some degree, and it brings an even higher level of ambition, as articulated in President Biden's recent pledge to cut United States greenhouse emissions to half their 2005 levels by 2030. Some of the necessary steps to fulfill that goal are proposed in the administration's infrastructure bill that we've already heard about. But a lot of it will be pursued through executive branch initiatives that try to survive congressional and judicial scrutiny once they've been put in place, rather than getting approval up front. If we zoom out to regulatory policy more generally, President Biden has signaled a determination to transform regulatory policymaking and the cost-benefit analyses that are a central part of it by focusing more on, in the words of a presidential memorandum that calls for modernization of the regulatory process, quote, social welfare, racial justice, environmental stewardship, human dignity, equity, and the interests of future generations, end quote. Uh, While we don't know exactly how any of that will work in practice, those sound like very big changes, representing a definitive end to an era where regulatory policymakers at least aspired to present their decisions as based on sound apolitical economics. That consensus, like so many others in American political life today, has dissolved. But the Senate is composed of 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Those 50 Democrats include uh, Emperor Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is not always eager to support more stringent regulations on fossil fuels uh, because of his constituency. So the question is, once again, how much Biden's cabinet agencies can push through without the help of Congress? You hear a lot about tackling climate change with green jobs, spending programs of various sorts, and that's certainly what President Biden emphasized in his address to Congress last night. That's in part because we're very much into spending these days. Um, and it's in part because it's it's more plausible to project a path through the Senate for a spending bill uh, than a new regulatory law, in, in large part because of the budget reconciliation rules that allow uh, the majority party to move a tax and spending bill uh, with, with just 50 votes. And it remains to be seen whether that provision is used again as, as it already was for the Recovery Act passed in March. So Congress could decide to involve itself anytime it wants. It, it has certainly the constitutional authority to, to dominate regulatory policymaking. 
It hasn't been completely absent in recent years. Uh, in 2016, Congress worked out an overhaul of our toxic substances law, and it passed a statute governing the label of genetically modified foods, uh, an imp important statute that most people have never noticed. But there was really very little um, statute making in the regulatory arena during the Trump administration. Instead, you see Congress become a peanut gallery. Its members cheering on the moves that the executive branch officials make or the counter moves that advocacy groups make in court. From a first principles constitutional uh, foundations point of view, that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, we like to think that the political process ought to be setting the agenda, ought to be making the big decisions about, about the shape of our regulatory state. But in recent years, that's just not how it's been going. And it's really been a bad bet to imagine that Congress is going to reassert itself in this in this arena. You know, as in others, uh, I'm sure that the foreign policy panel may talk about Congress reasserting its war-making uh, power to decide uh, the limits of America's conflicts ab abroad. Uh, but really, there's been a lot more talk about the possibilities of that than action realizing that. And that's certainly the case in the regulatory arena as well. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Phil. And also thank you for hyping the uh, foreign policy and defense panel again, which will be following this one. Got to catch that one. Uh, next up uh, is Scott, who's going to talk a bit about family policy. Uh, that's right. Uh, thanks a lot, Jim. Good morning. So in family policy, uh, this has been a place where I think there's been a lot of loose talk uh, about the Biden pres presidency being transformative. Um, and I, I think it's important at the outset to kind of keep some perspective. Um, what the administration has passed so far was the fourth or fifth of a series of emergency COVID-related uh, bills, very large bills, most of provisions of which were temporary. That said, uh, Biden certainly has uh, great aspirations embedded in uh, the American Jobs Plan and American Families Plan, uh, which he's recently introduced. If those pass, then uh, it will be time to, to speak of President Biden as a, as a president along the lines of an LBJ. Uh, or an FDR, um, but that certainly remains to be seen. Nevertheless, I think there are some real winds that are shifting in, in terms of family policy, and Republican policymakers are increasingly being uh, sort of blown along with those winds. Uh, so I think it's important to take a look uh, at, at, at the way things are, are trending uh, in this area. The first uh, trend I think I'd want to point out is uh, there's this pervasive view that it's money that matters and that nobody has enough money. That is a view that that probably was justifiable last April when the unemployment rate uh, was flirting with 20%. It was certainly less justifiable once we uh, got confirmation uh, later in the year that the savings rate was higher than it had been in 50 years. Um, and it was certainly less true when President Biden took office uh, when there was good data out there on poverty and social policy at Columbia University that suggested that poverty in January uh, was, was at an all-time low. It was actually comparable uh, and a little bit lower than what it had been before the pandemic. Yet we still uh, uh, passed uh, a $1.9 trillion uh, uh, bill on top of that um, that was heavily focused on cash transfers. Um, so about $900 billion uh, in the American Rescue Plan uh, consisted of transfers to households. Um, that was about half the cost. You know, Compare that to the bills that were passed in 2020 about 30% of which were, were transfers to households. Those included everything from you know, the $1,400 checks that we gave to even married couples making as much as $150,000, $1,400 per person. Um, those included the unemployment insurance expansions uh, that were extended 
uh, the $300 top-offs uh, that were included. Um, those included the, the child tax credit uh, expansion um, uh, that was uh, to the tune of $110 billion. Um, so uh, at least uh, at least one, 1. 1.2 to 1. 1.4 trillion of the American Families Plan uh, that President Biden has, has just proposed, 1.2 to 1.4 out of 1.8. Uh, consists of household transfers, um, and that's on top of all of these all of these things. And I should say too, the even the American Jobs Plan, which is in theory an infrastructure bill, um, includes four hundred billion dollars for caregiving infrastructure. Um, to use the euphemism, as far as I can tell, that's just an expansion of Medicaid, uh, an expansion of Medicaid benefits for long term care and a home and community based care. Four hundred billion dollars. So there's been less of a focus throughout on uh, on opportunity as as being important for family policy. Um, uh, we see that in the continued focus on 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 cash transfers, when really what we probably ought to have been focused on at some point is getting kids back in school, dealing with these learning gaps that have that have opened up over the last year, thinking about uh, remedial stuff for 2020. The UK is, is doing a national tutoring program. There's a number of things that we could have tried to do that were not simply cash transfers, um, but we have not been focused on those for various reasons. To be fair, uh, the Biden administration has proposed uh, money for things like universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds, um, universal community college. Even there, though, they don't seem uh, all that concerned about how the money is spent. It's more just about spending as much money as we can. And then, of course, there is, there's this kind of focus on inequality and who has more money uh, than, than who. Um, and we see that in all the rhetoric around the taxes with corporations and rich people having to pay their fair share, um, even though taxes are, are quite progressive in the United States versus other countries already. A couple other things. Um, there's also been a focus on universalism, I would say, or near universalism. The child allowance, for instance, was expanded to folks well up into the income distribution rather than being sort of something that was more targeted on, on folks that could use it more. Uh, we see calls for universal paid leave to the tune of $225 billion. There's the universal pre-K, that's $200 billion over 10 years. Community college, the direct payments, the 1,400 checks weren't universal, but what went to a lot more people than, than probably needed them to the tune of $400 billion um, in the American Rescue Plan. A third uh, area I would highlight is that there's been a disregard of deficits. Essentially, in 2020, we deficit financed $4 trillion in spending over and above what we normally would have done. In June of 2019, uh, the Congressional <laughs> Budget Office projected that uh, debt held by the public uh, would be 113% of GDP at the end of 2039, and 144% of GDP at the end of 2049. Uh, by March of 2021, this was before the passage of the American Rescue Plan, it projected that by 2041, uh, that figure would be 145% rather than the 113% it had projected by the end of 2039, just a year earlier. And at the end of 2051, it's projecting a debt of 202% of GDP, uh, which would be unprecedented. Um, and again, that's before the American Rescue Plan, which will add uh, 1.8 trillion to deficits, uh, just over the next 10 years. Um, the American Jobs Plan is is more than paid for by the tax cuts um, or the, the tax increases that they've included. Uh, but the American Families Plan would add another $300 billion uh, to deficits as well. Finally, I would say uh, there's there's sort of a disregard for unintended consequences. This is, has shown up in the debate over child allowances, um, which I've been a part of, um, with little concern about whether more generosity without work requirements attached to it would increase the number of people who choose not to work, would increase single parenthood. 
it's shown up in the unemployment insurance policies for sure, um, where there's been little regard to whether topping off incomes by $600 in 2020 and now $300 this year uh, would have an impact on, on labor supply uh, and on economic growth. It's shown up in disregard about uh, the potential for inflation if we're, uh, if we're spending more uh, uh, than we than is actually warranted um, given economic conditions, um, which could end up just driving up prices. Um, and it's shown up in, in sort of the disregard for whether some of the taxes that we're talking about, doubling the capital gains tax, for instance, uh, the top capital gains tax rate uh, will have unintended consequences as well. Now, it's easy to, to criticize Democrats and the Biden administration for some of this stuff, but I would argue that uh, the Republicans uh, increasingly are being carried along uh, by some of these wins as well. And I, I think that's something that we need to be careful about in the short term and the long term uh, to not forget uh, the principles um, that were guiding us before uh, we had a once uh, in a century uh, public health crisis. Um, and, and we've sort of got to shake that off as the economy returns to normal and the public health situation improves and, uh, and, and start forcefully arguing um, for the principles that we were advocating before. Great, Scott. That was, uh, that was fantastic. So I, I just want to start off with a uh, kind of a general question. Um, the Trump administration uh, was a, in many ways was a very unsurprising administration. Uh, many of his campaign promises, he then went and kind of did them or tried to do them. Uh, he said he wanted to cut taxes. We had some big tax cuts. He said he wanted to build a wall. Now they started building a wall. He said, well, you know, I'm, there might be a trade war. I might raise tariffs. And there was certainly a lot of trade wars and a, a lot of tariffs. So at, a, at sort of this 100-day mark, and what, let's just go, we can just, I'm just going to go kind of around in the, in the order in which you all spoke. What have been sort of the surprises that you've seen so far, either in what the Biden administration has done or uh, or what it's proposing to do? Again, we'll start with uh, Rick. Thanks, James. I think in my uh, area you know, of infrastructure, it's kind of interesting that uh, President Trump stressed infrastructure a lot uh, during the campaign, but there, you know, there, was, there was not an initiative um, you know, that, that made it uh, sort of into serious discussion you know, in Congress. Uh, even though, you know, typically a bipartisan uh, thing, but uh, President Biden has, you know, stressed that greatly in his in his first uh, 100 days. And I think he really does want to get some sort of a bipartisan uh, transportation bill, perhaps a energy bill, perhaps uh, communications uh, broadband uh, bill passed. He's reached out, you know, to, to the other uh, parts uh, of the aisle. I think the surprising thing in, in my world is how the uh, notion of infrastructure, where there's been pretty much consensus in the civil infrastructure world, it's roads, bridges, seaports, airports, uh, drinking water systems, wastewater systems, and some of the social infrastructure I missed, um, mentioned before was conflated uh, with uh, social program spending. So normally, you know, infrastructure is investment. Its investment could be made by private companies in the t uh, form of freight rail, uh, you know, the, the trains and, and signals for freight rail, private investment. But often we think about public investment, so in water systems. But a lot of that, um, the, the social spending that I think is mislabeled as infrastructure, you know, is, is really current, uh, current spending. And I think it's unfortunate because it tends to dilute, you know, what I think the United States, there's bipartisan agreement, we have problems with infrastructure delivery. It tends to dilute that policy discussion, James. And I would like to see, you know, more of a clear focus on what has traditionally been considered to be to be civil infrastructure uh, in the United States. So that's one surprising thing. I hope the discussion gets a little more focused as Congress actually passes bills 
uh, that deal with individual sectors. And um, we kind of get away from this notion that anything is infrastructure. So that was kind of the, one of the surprising things for me, James. Kyle, uh, anything, uh, anything jump out at you that you weren't quite looking for? In terms of tax policy, Biden has been remarkably lined with his uh, with his campaign proposals. Uh, during the campaign, he put forth you know around three to four trillion dollars in tax increases, focused on raising revenue from the top one percent, large multinational corporations, and that's what he's he's proposed so far. Maybe what might be somewhat surprising and is what is excluded from these tax proposals um, at this point. Hey, there's been a lot of, there's a lot of talk of, uh, during the campaign of scaling back the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act for high income households. Some of the provisions that he talked about getting rid of, such as the deduction for pass-through businesses, section 199 cap A, hasn't mentioned that yet, that hasn't been included. Another provision that is somewhat surprising that's been left out um, is the estate tax. During the campaign, he proposed bringing the estate tax back to 2009 parameters. That's been left out as well. But you know, overall, I'd say that things are, things are lining up um, quite well with what he promised during the campaign. Now, that said, it still early. Um, they, ha they haven't put out Treasury's Green Book yet. We don't know this, the entire suite of tax policies that the administration is going to put forth, and maybe some of those missing components will be there. Um, so we'll, we'll see. Always time for more tax hikes, Kyle. Always time for more tax hikes. Uh, uh, Phil, what, what have you seen so far that uh, maybe you didn't, uh, didn't expect to see? I think it depends on sort of there's a lot, there's some different conceptions of, of President Biden out there. I think because of who he was running against in the 2020 Democratic primaries, I think for a little while there was sort of a sense that Biden was some kind of centrist, um, you know, and maybe that's true compared to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but he really hasn't been governing as a centrist or, or reaching out across the aisle as somebody who seems to put a high premium on bipartisanship so far. Um, and I know some people may be surprised by that, others may not. I mean, before before Joe Biden ever became vice president, he was he was known as a sort of straight down the line partisan Democrat who's willing to make deals when when they're out there, uh, but but definitely uh, a, a real partisan. But I, I think I think he's definitely uh, been been trying to satisfy his progressive base uh, in these first 100 days to try to show them some wins, um, you know, some of which through executive action, some some um, some student loan forgiveness that he's undertaken, um, so you know, some climate actions for sure, um, reversing a lot of Trump administration ex executive orders. Um, so I think there's been a lot of that um, base base service sort of in the first 100 days. And I, I think the question is whether there's sort of a next phase where he actually thinks about, well, what can I actually get 60 votes for in the Senate? Or do we keep just trying to think about what we can sneak through with reconciliation uh, with, with 50? And, and I think that sort of remains to be seen. But a lot of the most ambitious things that this administration is talking about uh, we'll really have a hard time moving unless the president can get some Republicans on board. Scott, what surprised you? Well, I think uh, just as Kyle said, I mean, in some ways, what's surprising is is how uh, 
how much fidelity there's been to uh, what he was talking about doing on the campaign trail. Normally, you uh, president gets pulled or a presidential candidate gets pulled to his uh, to his extreme uh, by his party during the primaries, has to kind of tack to the center. Um, and if you, uh, he or she is lucky enough to become president, um, then there's no way that you can you can advance all of the promises that you made um, during the campaign. And it's certainly true that President Biden has not been able to uh, propose all of them, but uh, to a surprising extent, um, he has been willing uh, to take this agenda, which you know, in the as recently as the 2012 presidential election would have would have been uh, off the charts in terms of how ambitious and expensive it was. Um, uh, but to actually like uh, try to try to move it forward, um, I think there's only a couple of areas you know where where he's had to to compromise a little bit. Um, he had proposed lowering the Medicare eligibility age, I think, and that seems to have fallen by the wayside so far. Um, there were there was talk of trying to use the federal government's purchasing power to reduce um, prescription drug prices, and that uh, has also not not gone anywhere. He's disappointed some on the left by um, only to, uh, proposing to extend um, this this big child tax credit expansion uh, through 2025 um, with a with a smaller uh, permanent uh, extension of uh, of generosity uh, towards towards the bottom end. Um, but it's clear that you know he would he would like to extend that permanently uh, as well. Um, but I, I think the big surprise is the extent to which he's been willing. Um, to put forth a very expensive um, and ambitious agenda, despite having you know, an incredibly narrow margin um, in the Senate. Great. Thanks a lot, Scott. I actually want to start with Rick. A very fundamental question. You're going to spend a lot on infrastructure. That seems almost you know, either way that maybe, maybe the amount the president wants to spend will go down a bit. But do we know really how much we need to spend to upgrade our infrastructure or to fix our infrastructure whatever that means. Are the numbers he's talking about and the areas he's talking about, which everything from roads and highways to, to, to broadband, does that sound about right to you, the scope, or, or, or do we really have a good idea? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, James. And, and it's a question about, you know, what, what is the spending on? So as I said in my opening remarks, there's wide agreement that uh, the United States suffers from deferred maintenance in, in a number of infrastructure categories. So it's always important to think about it, you know, as a sector. And that, that includes uh, transportation infrastructure, so roads, bridges, tunnels, uh, highways, as well, you know, uh, dams, levees, water infrastructure, drinking water, wastewater treatment. And there's a standard that civil engineers use called a state of good repair. And that actually is, has a rigorous meaning in, you know, each infrastructure sector. What does a state of good repair mean for a section of interstate highway? What does it mean for a bridge, et cetera? And then there's sort of, you know, what we're currently spending. And that's, that's called, you know, is, is the deferred maintenance gap. And there's, it's the American Society of Civil Engineers does a pretty good job of estimating the, the deferred maintenance gap. Uh, slightly under a trillion dollars. There's other independent groups that have come up with um, gaps that are about that that same size, James. So there is this this issue of you know spending on on taking care of this deferred maintenance problem. One of the things that I stress in my AEI essays, James, is don't just spend money under the same delivery system because this is I think a seven or eight year bill. After that, we might be back in the same situation we were before if we don't change the way that infrastructure is operated and maintained. But the other issue, James, is for some infrastructure, it is 
you know, building out new systems. And it would be broadband internet access, which could be 5G and uh, trying to get, you know, broader uh, coverage of high speed or at least some certain speed internet access. So, so when you just, one of the things that's um, a bit maddening about the discussion is when you just talk about spending, you know, money, that's, that's an inadequate um, level of discussion for infrastructure. It's more nuanced than that. It has to be discussed across sectors. Just spending money on new projects could make it worse because a governor might want to say, well, I want to get reelected. I'll take this federal grant. We don't even know if it's going to be grants or loans. Let's assume it's going to be a federal grant and I'll install a new piece of infrastructure because it looks good for my reelection. But then my, my, my state, if it's a governor or if it's a mayor, my locality is stuck with the operation and maintenance of that piece of infrastructure for a very long time. So we have to be careful in how the programs are structured. And we really don't know much uh, currently, James, about there's not a lot of policy um, detail. Uh, the transportation secretary has ruled out increases in the gas or diesel tax, but he's also ruled out mileage based user fees or any sort of rates that you would charge for the use of, of roads. So so it's, it's unclear where the, the funding then is going to come from. Changes in the corporate tax, I don't think are going to come close to what we need, and it's not even close to being a user fee. So there's a lot of issues with the infrastructure proposal um, as it is is currently constructed, where it's almost impossible to really analyze it because it's so broad in general. I'm going to jump to Kyle in a second since you brought the corporate tax, but before I um, I, I do that, Rick, uh, in my email box, I, I, I have un, an untold, uncountable number of reports from banks and consulting firms to telling me about just the, the oceans of private capital ready right. to be spent on infrastructure. I mean, right. For years I've been getting these. That does not seem to be a reality that this plan addresses. Am I right? What, what happened to that? Great question, James. So I, th I think it's still on the table. If you listen to some of the things that the president says, including some of the remarks he made about how he's willing to uh, listen to new ideas, particularly in the infrastructure space. He's willing to uh, reach across the aisle. There have been two high-level meetings in the Oval Office that include included Republican senators. I don't think the administration is adverse to additional public-private cooperation. And there's a whole lot of ways that, you know, that, that the public and the private sector could better cooperate to bring in that capital. This is not Gordon Gecko capital, James. These are uh, public and private pension funds that, that are very patient, they're very uh, sound investors that are looking for long-term reliable cash flows to match with their long-dated uh, liabilities and infrastructure, you know, uh, can offer that. So, so the, it can, it, it's a win-win uh, situation. And I think the administration is open to that, James. It's really a question of how do you structure policy? And this is one of the, 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 the critical things so that the, the public interest is protected, right? So whatever the infrastructure is, whether it's a toll bridge or a, a toll road or a, a drinking water system, an electric system, we want reliability, we want safety, we want uh, rates to be affordable. So you protect the public interest while making it appealing for the private sector. And I have to say, James, of developed countries that I'm aware of, the United States is dead last in structuring arrangements that are attractive to the private sector long term. And, you know, there's there's different ways to do it. Bundling, I mentioned earlier, design and construction with operation and maintenance. It's called a D-bomb contract. Um, it's been used in some cases, but not much in the United States. 
that can include a financing component. And it's a 25, 30 year contract to take care of a, a bridge or a tunnel or an airport, a seaport, whatever it is. And you can structure that to attract private capital. The United States is, is way behind on this, James. And I think it's partly because of the state and local ownership, but it's partly just because we've done things the same way for 50 years. And uh, the state and locals often are a little bit um, risk averse when it comes to thinking about new ways of delivering. But we can borrow. The Canadians actually are the world leaders, I think, in in structuring public-private partnerships and ways to incorporate private capital. So I'm hopeful, James, that a new infrastructure effort across sectors in the United States would do a much better job of thinking about how the public and private can cooperate to have this sort of win-win-win arrangement. Kyle, as you sort of mentioned earlier, you know, part of the plan is to sort of begin to at least partially reverse the Trump tax cuts. Most talks been about the corporate tax rate, taking that from 21 to uh, at least 28. Um, the Biden administration seems to have a, a different theory of tax competitiveness than what I've heard in recent years. Much of the talk, at least as I heard it, has been about we have all these other countries with much lower rates, so we need to cut our rate to something close, at least close to what uh, they're they're doing. So we're we're competitive. The U.S. has many great qualities. Maybe we don't have to be quite as close, but we should uh, we should cut that rate. Now it seems to be we need to raise our rate for interests of I think both revenue raising and perhaps equity. And we're going to solve the competitiveness issue by getting those other countries to raise their rates. So previously we were I don't know rate, you know lowering the bridge. Now we want to raise the river. I, I'm not sure how that metaphor works. So. How much success really do you think we're going to get in getting other countries to think about tax competitiveness differently? And does that ultimately influence what we do? Yeah, I I mentioned this. uh, A big point of the Biden administration has been addressing what they call a race to the bottom. Corporate tax rates over the past 20 years or so have come down. Now, that's that's paused a little bit, um, but if even uh, so France, for example, they're scheduled to reduce their corporate tax rate from somewhere around 32% down to 25% come next year. So so there, there's certainly a trend towards lower corporate taxes, um, at least the statutory tax rate. Other co- countries also have provisions uh, to attract um, types of different types of profits. A popular provision in some countries is called a patent box, which is a special lower tax rate on the returns to intellectual property. Hungary, for example, they have a corporate tax rate of 9%, and they and it's actually 4.5% if it's intellectual property income. So you have really, really low rates there. Um, and yeah, Bi- Biden, the Biden administration is betting on, to some degree, um, the ability to reverse some of that. So saying to um, countries that, hey, we have this corporate tax system. Um, we're going to have, we have these provisions called the shield. We're going to make it actually harder for our companies and other companies to do cross-border investment between the United States and your country. Unless you bring up the tax rate to be closer to the United States, because we think that you having a rate that's much lower than ours is harmful um, to the United States, but also harmful in just in general for tax policy throughout the world, because they also believe that just having higher corporate and capital taxes is good because it, it makes the tax system progressive overall. 
Uh, I mentioned this very briefly that you know, I, I'm skeptical to, uh, of this of this uh, being successful. I mean, you've already seen pushback from Ireland. Um, you know, of course, they have a 12.5% tax rate, and they've built a lot of their economic growth on the ability to attract investment from the United States and other large economies with their lower corporate tax rate. Um, you've had pushback from Hungary. Um, and I think you'll have pushback from other countries where you know they they want they think that it's appropriate that they you know how they've decided to raise revenue is is appropriate and the United States shouldn't have too much say into how they they structure their tax system. So I, I am skeptical. This there's there's kind of a um, an analogous situation in the world of um, climate policy as well um, in that. Some lawmakers think that the best way to address climate change is to get countries into a club to all price carbon in, at the same level so that there's no leakage. You know, the production doesn't go to China or India. So you got to force them to um, change their policies to, to be closer to ours. But I think that, that it's very difficult to do that sort of stuff. And I think what would be better is if the United States structured our system to raise revenue in less distortive ways. I mean, you can structure a corporate tax to raise revenue without distorting investment. Um, I mentioned 100% bonus depreciation, expanding expensing to other investments, allowing companies to fully deduct. Um, I think, you know, again, looking back to 2016, um, Republican lawmakers were thinking about border adjusting the corporate tax, making it look more like a value-added tax. Big upsides to that is that you don't have to worry about these issues of profit shifting or shifting production overseas. The corporate tax is indifferent to that. Um, so I think there are ways that you could address this issue without you know, betting on, I think, the unlikely chance that you can convince other countries to, do, to do, uh, change their policy. Yeah, one other quick thing, Kyle. Uh... Uh, for the Biden administration, are they, it's not just they want to raise that corporate rate. It seems they want to tax companies differently because it seems very worried that some companies are, aren't paying enough in corporate income tax or they're not paying anything. So this all seems to be a different philosophical change, how, how you tax the corporation in America. What, what, what is the thinking there? Yeah, I think a Another motivating factor is the perception that, especially after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that not enough corporations are paying enough tax. And you see headlines that are somewhat shocking, you know, so-and-so company um, earning big profits but paying zero in corporate tax in 2020 or 2019. Um, I think you know, several companies, companies have been named, whether it's Amazon um, or Apple in, in the past. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think that a lot of the motivated, the policies are motivated by that. I talked about this 15% minimum book tax. This minimum tax is aimed specifically at those headlines. So, and I think that that, that sort of policymaking is problematic. I mean, I yeah, yes, the, the headlines are kind of shocking, but like, you know, what you're, what you're looking at, what you're seeing there is kind of a difference between what's called book income income that you report to your shareholders, um, which is meant to measure the performance of a firm relative to tax liability, which is based on taxable income. Taxable income is defined differently for different purposes. I mean, the tax code is meant to raise revenue fairly um, among corporations. It's meant to treat 
businesses that make investments, um, it's supposed to reduce their liability with expensing. And there, there, there are policy differences there. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that the administration um, is at least politically attuned to this, um, this perception that there are low effective tax rates. But again, I, I don't think it's necessarily good, uh, good policy. I, you can if you think the corporations are not paying enough tax, I mean, address the the reasons for the underlying reasons. I mean, you know, green energy credits, for example, or credits for research and development, these things reduce tax liabilities. And if you think that that's a bad thing, then get rid of those. But of course, I don't think lawmakers will. Those credits are very popular politically. Phil, uh, what can this administration do with zero Republican help? Uh, that answer seems to be changing. I mean, I, I thought I thought they could do a reconciliation bill. Then it seemed like they could do more than one re- reconciliation bill. Now, I, I've heard crazy theories about ma- maybe many reconciliation bills. They can do the uh, reconciliation for 2030 or something. They can do it this year. I don't know. Do we have a firm grasp exactly what this, we've been talking about these two big bills and perhaps some other plans in the years going forward. Do we really know what the, what this administration can really do kind of on its own? Well, I think we shouldn't underestimate just what executive branch action totally disconnected from Congress can accomplish. I, I think that's been the sort of trend in American policymaking in, in, in recent decades. It's certainly not something new with the Biden administration. But you, you've really seen a lot of very important initiatives that are just run out of the executive branch. And there's also sort of an effect where the policy ambition goes to look for those things more than it looks to go pass new laws, because passing new laws is seen as such a long shot. And this is at least something they can control. So, you know, to take student loans again as an example, that's something where the Department of Education has a lot of a lot of power um, where the president can really uh, make make some things happen um, w- without having to go to Congress. I think presidents have been pushing the limits on that. You have an eviction ban that's pushed out from the executive branch during this COVID pandemic. That's a hugely consequential policy. It's not so clear how, how, how legal it is. I think there's a challenge pending right now, but a lot of very important policies. I, I do want to make one point, which is We've seen a kind of bipartisan shift in the, the philosophy of spending. And I think Scott got to this a little bit in his remarks, but you know, if you go back 10 years when the Tea Party Congress had just been uh, elected in, in, in the 2010 midterms, and you look at those fights that President Obama had with, with John Boehner and the Republican Congress back then, you had a pretty stark divide. You had a president who, who wanted more spending to to combat the Great Recession. And you had a Republican Party that really just actually wanted spending to go way down. And that created quite an impasse. And, uh, you know, we had a debt ceiling showdown. We had some government shutdowns in the years to follow. It it was a real real difference in views. I think today we have a party in President Biden's Democratic Party that wants to spend a whole lot more money and a Republican Party that wants to just spend a lot more money. That's a really big shift. You know, when the Republican senators come and make their counteroffer on this infrastructure bill, it still comes in at something like $600 billion. I mean, 
those kinds of numbers were foreign to uh, a, a lot of policy discussions not so long ago. And we generally, we've shifted from talking about hundreds of billions to just everything is denominated in the trillions now, which to me is a, a little bit uh, scary. So I think there is potentially room, especially on this spending front, to get together a bipartisan coalition. Um, you know, we saw it a lot over the last year with, with responding to COVID. We passed huge, historically large supplemental spending bills with overwhelming bipartisan support in 2020. You know, obviously that, that wasn't the way that the, the March 2020 relief bill was, was passed. It was passed with 50 votes using budget reconciliation. And there may be another round of that after the Senate parliamentarian said uh, that she believed it, it would be legal uh, or permissible for Democrats to pass a, a revised budget and therefore get another bite at reconciliation. But, you know, Joe Manchin has said he doesn't think that that's the way to go. I think Kristen Sinema, an, another centrist uh, Democrat from Arizona in the Senate, ha has expressed reservations. Neither of them seems all that keen on getting rid of the filibuster. So I, I do think that the, the next phase is going to be searching out what what you could peel off some more centrist Republicans to support and, and a lot of this spending, uh, they can be given their piece of the pie along the way. I, th I think just trying to proceed with 50 votes really exposes the fissures within the Democratic coalition. It's easy to pretend that everyone is on the same page when you're just putting out proposals that, that, that you don't expect to go anywhere, but when you're actually trying to pull together 50 votes and not lose a single one, really find out what people want. And uh, I think there's more intramural uh, differences within the Democratic Party than they'd like to admit. Scott, let me just uh, briefly tick off some of the things in the American Family Plan. We have a, a child tax credit extension and child care spending. We have paid family, medical leave, universal pre-K, free community college, Pell Grants, Obamacare credits, IRS funding, not even done. There's more There's more to that list, but this is supposed to be about you all, not me. So I'm going to end, end my ticking off that list. I'm going to ask you that. Uh, when you chatted earlier, you talked about some unintended consequences. Uh, that's a lot of moving parts. That's a lot of money and a lot of different programs. I'm not going to ask you to tick off all the potential unintended consequences for each of those, but could you give a flavor of, you think, the risks that maybe aren't being addressed in this sort of rush to, to spend money? The policy debate that I've kind of been most involved in uh, so far this year has been around the expansion of the child tax credit, um, which you know has been a bipartisan policy. It was uh, it was it was bipartisan when it was created um, in 1997, I believe. Uh, it's been expanded multiple times over the years by Democrats and and Republicans. Uh, the TCJA um, it doubled it actually um, from 1,000 maximum of 1,000 to a maximum of 2,000. And, and then uh, what the Biden administration did was to expand it in a number of ways, uh, to allow older kids to get it. Most importantly, it became available to everybody, whether parents are working at all or not. What that does is, is it sort of risks taking us back to uh, an era in anti-poverty policy um, that you know I'd associate with the 1980s uh, and earlier where uh, if you were, um, if you could uh, uh, compile, assemble enough safety net benefits from enough programs, it was possible to, uh, to have a family without working, um, or at least without working on the books, 
Um, and it was possible uh, to uh, to raise uh, children without uh, without being part of a married couple. And over decades, you know, as as the old cash welfare program expanded, um, we saw an, uh, an increase in single parenthood, for instance, and and we saw an increase in uh, the number of non-working single parents. Um, the number of kids growing up uh, without a, a working parent present in the home and living without a father, for instance. Now, those things uh, are bad for uh, for upward mobility, um, for longer-term poverty. Um, and, uh, and because of that, there was bipartisan consensus in the 1990s that we should reform uh, our, our, our safety net policies. And, and we did. We uh, created a more generous safety net for workers. Um, we made it tougher to receive safety net benefits without working. Um, poverty among kids fell. Poverty among single parents fell. Um, and, and that was a bipartisan uh, set of policies in the 1990s. Now, this this new child tax credit, which is essentially a child allowance, it's 3600 bucks for younger kids and 3000 uh, for older kids every year, threatens to take us back uh, to this era where uh, where there are incentives um, not to work uh, or, or not to marry. Um, that's the kind of thing that has been shrugged off um, by a lot of folks on the left. And it's also been sort of, I would say, minimized um, by a lot of folks on the right who are more concerned about um, subsidizing uh, children and parenting more generally because they have a lot of people this mistaken belief that it's become uh, uh, more expensive to raise kids over time and that and that even middle class and upper middle class families uh, need to be subsidized in that regard. So that's just one instance where, you know, I, I think this relentless focus on, you know, just just getting more money into the hands of uh, of households, the, the immediate benefits are pretty clear. Giving people more money uh, reduces poverty. Um, the child tax credit expansion has certainly done that. You know, providing uh, more child care subsidies will make it easier to pay for, for child care. But there's not a lot of attention to the longer term negative consequences that could follow. And, and that's something that I think even Republicans increasingly are, are forgetting. These are lessons that, that we knew once or that conservatives knew once and that they're forgetting. And as, as Phil said, sort of in a race to kind of offer more of, this, more of the same, but just not quite as extravagant uh, as, as what the left is offering. Does this new thinking, is it, has it been driven by lessons learned? Have there been a series of economic studies that show we need to do things differently? Is it, is it more kind of a, a philosophical change of thinking? Is it just driven by sort of changing political co coalitions and who who's in what party? What sort of is, is driving this really shift in thinking that we saw in the 90s until today? Yeah, I think it's a complicated question. I think part of it uh, has to do with um, how far out we are from things like, um, you know, having a situation where, uh, you know, as many as 14% uh, of, of, uh, of kids um, uh, were receiving AFTC benefits um, or a situation where, you know, we had hyperinflation in the 1970s. People don't worry about inflation anymore. No one has experienced the kind of nervousness that Bill Clinton uh, confronted when he took office in 1993 about uh, the bond market and what it was going to do about uh, about deficits. Um, so to some extent, uh, I think policy is a little bit of a victim of its own success. To some extent, um, there's there's an element of cohort replacement uh, going on. I think a lot of younger uh, folks, in, including younger folks on the center right, who have kind of been through you know uh, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, and then a global pandemic, uh, it's it's caused a lot of 
uh, of insecurity and a lot of openness to the idea that we need the federal government uh, to take care of us, which I think is is just misguided and, and based on a misreading of a lot of, of data. But I think I think that's what's driving. That was fantastic. Appreciate it. I think that we're at the end of sort of the uh, domestic policy portion of uh, of the event. We will be back again to discuss discuss foreign policies. So we will take a brief break. Thanks all the uh, panelists for uh, for showing up. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.